Well, if you uh, have your Bibles or your phone Bible, uh, we're going to look first at Judges chapter 2, beginning with uh, verse 10, and then we're going to look at 16 through 20, and it reads, After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. But then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemy as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So this week in the story, we come to a 200-year period of time, a range known as Judges, and it was 1200 through 1000 BC. It was a very dark time during Israel's history. In the book of Judges, if you read it, and you might have read the Bible reading plan, you see a lot of bloodshed, and it's very violent. And the nation seems to be on this spiritual roller coaster, this cycle of spiritual growth, and then followed by decline and backsliding. And then the last verse of the book ends with these words, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Why was this? How did this happen? How did it start so well and then end so badly? Well, Joshua was a great leader, but he failed at a very important job. The number one job of any leader is to reproduce another leader, to have them learn and train them up. And he failed to train up a new leader to take his place, as Moses had done for him. And the most important thing we can do is invest our lives into the lives of others, especially the next generation. And so the 12, 12 tribes begin to fall apart and scatter. There was no unity. This made them vulnerable to the attacks from the Midianites from the east and the Philistines from the west. But not only did it create political and military chaos, it created spiritual and moral decay and chaos. It's just interesting how all that goes together. Verse 211 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, they got spiritual amnesia. They forgot what happened as we've been studying through the past several weeks. And the whole generation grew up. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the mighty acts. That's a frightening verse you think about it it's important for us to pass on these stories of our spiritual faith journey and the spiritual faith journey of the heroes in the bible that we read about and it did not take place in those times can you imagine a, a child not learning about god about grace about love about forgiveness kindness and joy and the abundance especially in the mighty acts of jesus christ and what he had done i can't even begin that so rather than joyful obedience that goes in the same direction, you begin to see this pattern, this cycle. I'm half in, I'm half out, I'm out. And so look at this pattern of behavior. 
Disobedience leading to punishment, repentance leading to deliverance. And then you see that that happens again. And I, I don't know if this, I know that there are times in my life where this is real to me too. And maybe it's real for you today. Sin follows by impression, repentance, deliverance. And we see it in Israel, and we can experience. And what happens when we drop our guard? And that's what happens with this nation. We relax. We pay less attention uh, to our walk with the Lord. We compromise our values. We, we, it doesn't really happen intentionally. We get busy. We maybe make money. We need to pay our bills, raise our kids' soccer game. And we slowly drift away from what's important. We forget to ask ourselves and do inventory about what is vital in our lives, especially in times of difficulties as these judges experienced. So the first judge we look at is Deborah. You see, in in that time of compromise, God in his love raised up Deborah. And each time God raises up these judges, they call people back to him back into the light of the Lord. And so for 400 years, one by one, there were a dozen judges, and 11 of them were men, and one of them was a woman. And this woman, Deborah, she was a leader. And when you think of the term judge, you probably think of a person that presides over trial and hits the gavel and declares something. But I don't want you to think of that, because at this time, a little over a thousand years before Christ's birth, a judge was even more important to that. In the Old Testament, these judges, they were political, they were spiritual, they were military leaders, and they were all of that rolled into one. And so Deborah had to have a tremendous amount of gifts. And so Deborah, it says, was a prophet, the, life, uh, the wife of Lipidoth, and was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And so we tune in on a little bit on what Deborah is doing. So the people of Israel had been oppressed by a guy named Jabin, and he was the king of Cana. And Deborah is stirred by the wretched condition of what Israel is going through during this time. And she sends a message to a man called Barak and tells him that the Lord God has commanded him to muster 10,000 troops and to concentrate them on Mount Tabor. At that time, it states that the Lord of God will draw Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, to the river of Kishon. Now, Barak doesn't want to go alone. He doesn't want to go without Deborah. He knows that God is with Deborah, and he sees that into her action as a leader. And so Deborah agrees to go with him. And she declares that that glory, that victory, will belong to a woman. And as soon as that news of the rebellion reaches Sisera, he collects 900 chariots of iron and a host of people. And then Deborah says in Judges 4.14, she says, Go, this very day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men follow him, and she prophesied that that battle would be won, and Sisera is completely annihilated. Now, he jumps off his chariot, and he wants to flee. He's trying to save his own life, and he flees to this tent of this woman named Jael. He's exhausted. He lays down to rest, 
And she's like, you want some, something to drink? He says, yes, I want some water. Well, she gives him some goat milk, and he falls asleep. And what does she do? She knows what's happening. And this is where you hear this bloodshed and judges. She gets a tent stake and a hammer while he's sleeping, and kabash, right through the eye and the brain, kills him. And they're chasing him, and then Barak finds him, and then all of a sudden there are songs written about her and Deborah. And so this biblical account of Deborah ends with a statement after the battle that there was peace in the land for 40 years. And so that you see the circular pattern. That generation is restored through the faithfulness of this judge called Deborah. Deborah's influence on others saved her people. You know, I don't know, I, I thought about this, I don't know where I would be without the influence of incredible people in my life. I think about my grandmother Mary, who is a, a short uh, she said she was not fat. She was fluffy, German, Catholic woman that lived on the west side of Cincinnati. She'd take me to mass, and then I think about my mom, and then I think about my wife, Kim. They all took me to church. And it's amazing how these faithful women do that. You know, there's a story about a wealthy CEO of a company who was on vacation in New England with his wife. And one time they stopped for gas, and he went inside to get a candy bar. And when he came out, his wife was having a very animated conversation with the gas station attendant. They were laughing, and the husband felt a little awkward, and so he didn't say anything. He just got in the car, and she continued talking for several minutes with this gas station attendant. And finally, she got into the car with her husband, and there was a little awkward and uncomfortable silence. And finally, the husband said, hey, who was that guy? And she answered, you know what's the strangest thing? That's the guy I was engaged to for a couple years before I met you. We haven't seen each other for years. Well, my husband, he didn't know what to think, and he just drove a little further, and there was finally this broke the silence again. And with smug arrogance, he said, oh, you know, do you ever think about it, dear? You'd have married him. You'd have married a gas station attendant. And she immediately snapped back, no, honey, you don't understand. Had he married me, he would have become a CEO, and your butt would have been pumping gas at the gas station. So you know what? Do not underestimate the influence of a godly woman. Don't underestimate that. Amen, ladies? Amen. Yeah. So Deborah has these leadership gifts, and she, in herself, leads them in 40 years. A whole generation experiences connectedness to God and his peace. That's the kind of teacher I want to follow. She's listening to God. She had that gift. And that's the number one gift a leader should have is to listen. Second, a great leader is not afraid to share the word of God. And she wasn't afraid to share the word of God with her people. And she walked closely with the Lord. You know, there's this meta-narrative that continues to unfold on the planet Earth. And it remains clear that God desires to use men and women in that lower story to stay close and connected and devoted in a relationship to him and call his people back to himself. Second Chronicles 16 confirms this. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those hearts who are loyal to him. I know that verse doesn't match that. But uh, he is. He's looking to and fro a few good men and women who will be faithful, loyal, and see his purposes and divine purposes in the world. And God is. He's looking for leaders, but I think as I look for this, uh, I looked at this text this week, it says they did not follow as well. 
It's been said that followership is just as vital as leadership. Followership is just as vital as leadership. And they stop following God and their leaders. We have to ask ourselves, who are we following? Who are we tracking? You know, we follow a lot of people. Think about Twitter, Instagram. You can follow uh, the, the Bengals. No, don't do that. They're losers. Anyway, don't follow them. But, you know, who are you following? Who do you want to be like? And I think of the people in the past. When I was 15, I saw a movie called Back to the Future. And I found myself, I wanted to be like that main character, Marty McFly, who was played by Michael J. Fox. I dressed like him. I was telling Kim this morning, I had that, that orange, it looked like a life preserver, puffy vest. And I had my, you know, it's, it's the 80s, it was kind of a new style. And I kind of ushered that into our high school. And I talked like them. Doc, are you telling me you made a time machine out of a DeLorean? You know, you remember that? And, and I thought about that. He was kind of like my ideal. And thank God I stopped being like him. Thank God. And now I think about all of the, the people as I became a Christian, and you see these leaders, these spiritual leaders who are called out, and they lead, and they have influence on life. God raised them up, and I've taken pieces of them and inserted them into what Jonathan is today, and I'll continue to do that. I really will. But here's Christ. He said, it says, we are followers of Jesus Christ. We are followers of him. And constantly, God raises up those leaders, and he does that in love. And when they fall in love with him, it's amazing what God can do through them and in them. And many times, they are unlikely candidates. We have this trend of the unlikely being used by God, and we see it in the next two judges. The first one is Gideon. For several years, Israel had been, had been struggling through this period of oppression again. And the Midianites and the Malachites, they were ruthless barbarians. They intimidated the Hebrews by destroying their crops and infiltrating and stealing cattle. And in Judges 6.11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree of Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizurite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat, threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. You don't thresh wheat with a wine press. The wind needs to blow that chaff away. He's hiding. He's doing stuff in secret. He didn't want to be seen by these Midianites. And they were thieves, barbarian thieves. You know, I think sometimes preachers paint a picture of Gideon as being a very cowardly man, but he's just a realistic guy. He's a very practical man. And he knew that he was no, he was no match for these vigilante tactics that the Midianites were using. And in the midst of the story, God is going to move Gideon from fear to trust. And that's what God does with leaders. The angel greets Gideon, and immediately a sentence is stated to him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he probably went, mighty warrior? I'm doing, I'm doing some wheat in the wine press, man. He has a hard time seeing himself that way. Bad things are happening to his nation. It feels like God is abandoning him. He's not feeling brave. He, he, it seems like he's insignificant, and he's from this insignificant uh, tribe, and he has these doubts. He's hesitant. He's resistant to God's call, but the angel speaks strength to him. Go in strength, for you have to save Israel. Am I not sending you? And so, thank God, 
He listens to that because this army starts to muster, coming from the east, crossing the Jordan River into Israel's territory, and they set up camp. And this big battle, it starts to brew, and these odds aren't too good. Gideon has 32,000 men, which sounds like a big number, until we learn that the other army has 120,000 men. Talk about a reason to be scared. And they're completely outnumbered. I'm sure Gideon was thinking, what's God's plan in here? We're going to get annihilated. And God says this. This is fantastic. He says, you have too many men. Tell those who are fearful and trembling first, they got to get out of here. I don't need those men. Return home. So 22,000 return home. Only 10,000 men are left against 120,000. This math's not adding up. But God has a great plan. But God's not done. Try to visualize this. Gideon orders all the men down to the watering hole to drink. So he needs watching them. And every man that bends down to the watering hole and cups that water with their hands on their knees, he sends home. He keeps the men that get down into the mud and are lapping that water up like a dog. He keeps those guys. I think he's going, you know what, I want those guys that are going to get dirty. These barbarians, we're going to fight these barbarians with these barbarians. That's the kind of guerrilla warfare guys that I want. These guys are hardcore. And so 9,700 men is the total. Or no, they're sent home. Leaving Gideon with only, here it is, listen to this, 300 men. And he's going to teach them these guerrilla tactics. He commands Gideon to attack the Midianite camp in the middle of the night. And God says to Gideon, I have given this into your hand. He knows Gideon. He knows that he's going to need another sign of assurance. So God tells him, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant and just listen to what they're saying. And so they sneak down. And they overhear these Midianite warriors telling their dreams that they're going to get annihilated. And it convinces Gideon to take them out. And they attack that camp. His confidence soars. And Gideon lives into that name, mighty warrior, that the angel had given them. You see, there was a big difference between the way God saw Gideon and the way Gideon saw himself. It's the same for us. In our self-talk, I don't know what your self-talk, what do you say to yourself? We need to learn to hear these words of God, to focus on God and and. Listen to what he says about us. We just, we just sang it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. You claim it. I am a child of God. God knows who you are, and he knows exactly how he's made you. And like Gideon, too often we focus on, we focus on our own weaknesses, shortcomings, limitations, and our failure. While God is calling us, beloved, mighty warrior, strength. Gideon was not from some special tribe. He was the least likely uh, candidate, but God moves him from fear to trust. And don't miss this. The angel of the Lord was inspiring him to become a mighty warrior. He is not a mighty warrior yet in reality, but in the eyes of God who always sees the best version of ourselves in the future, God speaks profound and inspiring words of hope and courage. And there's no doubt with these people and characters in the Bible. And it goes the same for us because we are a part of his story too. And he wants to raise us up that way. 
Looking at these, these leaders reminds me of a story of when the Pope saw Michelangelo's uh, statue of David for the very first time. And the Pope asked Michelangelo, how do you know what to cut away? And Michelangelo's reply was, it's simple. I just look inside and remove everything that doesn't look like David. Do you know God desires to do that divine sculpting on you as a result of this journey that we experience looking at these heroes as a result of surrender, as a result of giving our lives to the Lord and allowing him to operate? He knows you. He created you. And he desires to look inside of you and remove everything that does not look like the one true you. And desires to utilize your personality and all the existence and the fabric of being of who you are in him. We have to remember fear can stop the divine sculptor's work. Like Gideon, we have to move from fear to trust. I'll never forget, this was kind of embarrassing, but... I had this experience when I, was, when I first became a pastor. I did my first baptism, and I was 24, 25 years old, and I never held a baby. And um, these, these parents come up to me, and I, I'm ready to baptize their kid. I got the font there, and they hand me the baby, and I didn't grab the head, and the head was going like flopping around, and the whole congregation, <gasps> you know, and I'm going like this, and, <laughs> and I'm trying to baptize this baby, and I just remember feeling this small, even in that one act. My, one of my first very uh, sacrament acts as a pastor, and I almost, the baby's head almost fall off and roll on the floor. <laughs> Eric's like, you are not holding my kid, Jonathan. <laughs> well, thank God we had a baby, and I learned, you know, head support. You know, but you think about like, oh my gosh. But I just remember that and feeling so inadequate. Feeling, but I can't fear that, you know. God created me to be a pastor, to administer the sacraments. You know, God created you with that divine purpose. So the next judge we'll look at is Samson. If Gideon lacked confidence, Samson had just the opposite problem. He's like a superhero. He's an amazing superhuman strength. He's also one of the mo most morally flawed characters in the Old Testament. Samson's family, and we got to give a little history here, took a Nazarite vow of dedication when he was born. There were three things they vowed to avoid as a Nazarite. Anything made from grapes, wine, grape juice, raisins. Secondly, they were... They were to avoid the barber, haircuts. Thirdly, they were not to come in contact with dead bodies. And so Samson was dedicated with this vow at birth. And his calling from birth was to begin a deliverance again through that circular cycle that I talked about and deliver them specifically from the Philistines and their oppression. And when reading the account of Samson's life, there are incredible feats of strength. For example, he tore a lion apart. He killed a 1,000 Philistines. And this is a, an instrument, a weapon I've never heard of until you read it in the Bible. A donkey jawbone. Killed him with a 1,000 people with a donkey jawbone. And the lessons we can learn from Samson, though, were through his downfall, from the deceptions of especially Delilah. He falls in love with Delilah. However, we read that she's just being secretly paid by the Philistines to find out what his strength is. And so 
You know it, right? Do you know it? His hair. The secret of his strength. His hair. And so she goes, she whispers to him, and she does this three times. Like, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. You know, and she keeps asking him this. I'm just going to have to say it. I got to use the F word. Samson is stupid. He is. He has no IQ. It, it, I've heard it said that horny, horniness has no IQ. Lust has no IQ. And his lust for Delilah blinds him to her lies, to her true nature. He wants so badly her and repeatedly fell for it and, and was deceived. And eventually he crumbles, he caves in, and what happens? Shaved. Hair, gone. Prisoned. Zaps his strength. Samson let down his guard. But it's amazing, as I look at it, there's this chapter in Hebrews 11, and I, I would love for you to read that sometime. It, it lists these these people, it says this is kind of a hall of faith among those. Through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, it says, and gained what was promised, whose weakness was turned into strength. And then it lists all of these people, and Samson is in that list. And it proves that God can use people of faith no matter how imperfectly they live their lives. And there's something else to learn from judges, that, that God does raise up flawed leaders, it does. Look, I, want you, I want you to hear this, this chapter from Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? Do I not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, listen to this, whose weakness, their weakness, was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle and routed the foreign armies. Did you hear that? These leaders, they were just like you and me. I read these stories and I'm flabbergasted. How, why would God choose that person? Samson, a prideful playboy. Gideon suffered under lack of confidence and fear. But here's the reality. Behind those flaws, God was with them. That's five simple words I want you to, I want to end with. I will be with you. I will be with you. When we share communion, we're reminded that Christ's presence is with us. I will be with you. In his last words before he was ascended, I will be with you. Go, make disciples. I will be with you. And lately, as I read through this journey through the story, I've been thinking about these five words often with each of these characters. You know, I, when I get into certain situations that, where I have this fear and, and I just don't trust, just remember this. I've been writing some responses down of, of some things that I hear from others and things I've said to myself. Five other words, like this. It's too late for you. You've messed up too much. No one will want you. It's never going to happen. You'll just fail again. You're never going to change. You'll always be alone. I failed as a dad. I failed as a mom. God doesn't love you anymore. It'll be like this forever. You've wasted too much time. You're on your own. You don't need any help. God's done giving you chances. We have to replace each one of those statements with that statement right there. No way. Because you know what? It's, we've seen it in the Bible. We've experienced this for seven weeks. Press that. Lean into it. Live that. Those five words should come so quickly 
This should empower you and fill you with strength because his presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit desires to activate you and live, help you live into that. We have to keep that promise because he says, lo, my promise to you is I will be with you. Therefore, square up your shoulders. Stand on the shoulders of these people. Lean into his word, fall in love, and know that God declares, I was with Moses, I was with Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and I will be with you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. We love you. We can stand on the shoulders of these people, and you, through, even through their flaws, you utilize them. Move us from fear to trust. Reverse any of these lies. And may we trust in your promise, for you keep your promises. And so, Lord, we worship you and we love you because you indeed are with us. Amen.